Well, turn your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll read the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 2 into the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of, of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are merciful beyond compare. And your greatest act of revealing your mercy has been through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come this morning giving you praise and honor and glory through Him alone. What a gracious gift you've given in your Son for sinners like us. Lord, there are so many times we don't see ourselves as the sinners we really are. We confess to you that we often don't think soberly about ourselves and we think we are better than we are. During this time of study this morning, will you help dispel the darkness of that mindset? Would you help to begin to dissipate our self-righteousness? Even as Christians, Lord, we carry forward self-righteousness in our minds. And sometimes we act it out and live it out in our lives. Or be gracious to us to show us the self-righteousness that is still there bubbling over at times. Help us to see Christ rightly as the high priest, the one and only high priest. We praise you that you give us time to study your word. 
May it be honoring unto you. Lord, we lift up to you those who are sick. We're so thankful some are back with us after a couple of weeks of sickness. Others, Lord, have uh, gotten sick in this last week. Uh, I know of several families, Lord, that are battling illnesses. We ask for your mercy upon their bodies. Lift them up to you, Lord. There's so many things that show us that our bodies are failing. There would be no illness, no sickness if it were not for sin. So help us to remember in the times of sickness our need for your Son, the Lord Jesus. I do pray for Gracie Bickford and her family after the passing of her grandfather. Ask your mercy upon them. Lift them up to you this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start kind of where we left off uh, last week and finishing up some thoughts about propitiation. One writer says, when people sin, they arouse the wrath of God. When people sin, they arouse the wrath of God. They become enemies of God. Now, that's a short statement, but it's an important statement for us to recognize the context and the fullness of the gospel in the person and work of the Lord Jesus in the previous two weeks discussing the, uh, the, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ, that the active obedience was necessary in the context of uh, our, uh, our propitiation being made and that atonement and propitiation are not at odds with one another. It's a both and. We need both of those. There's no need to discount one for the other. It's the importance of recognizing that when we sin, we arouse the wrath of God. That we as sinners are enemies of God. To arouse the wrath of God is that context of understanding that God will pour out His wrath on sin. There is real actual judgment for sin. If we take away the Scripture's teaching of the wrath of God, we're taking away one of the most important understandings of our need for salvation. If God is not holy, then He would not have wrath towards sin. If there is no wrath towards sin, then what is there to fear from God? People say, well, you shouldn't fear God. That's a terrible thing to teach people. No, we should have a healthy fear of God. God's being requires us to have a healthy fear of who He is. God's being requires us to see that our sin against Him is real. It's actual sin against Him. It is that which we have done that goes against His law and His law is built upon His very nature and being. And to break one of His laws is to say to Him, 
you are not worthy of my obedience. Why would God not be worthy of our obedience? Scripture teaches He's holy, He's perfect, He's righteous. Why would He not be worthy of our obedience to His commands? When the Scripture teaches the doctrine of sin, it teaches that not only are we sinning against God Himself and His being, we are sinning against His commands. We are breaking those commands and saying to Him, You are not worthy of my obedience. This puts us into a context to recognize that our obedience to God's command is a part of our practical worship of God. When we do not obey God's commands, then we are are going into a way of false worship. We're actually taking our own thought and our own ways and our own living and we're putting that into a context to say... I will do what I want, therefore I will worship myself. And this is the problem with humanity in its fallen state is that we are, generally speaking, we are self-worshippers. And being fallen in that state as self-worshippers, God will bring His wrath upon that type of thinking and living And ultimately, that means he brings his wrath upon those who live their life in that way. His wrath will be borne out in his judgment. He will bring judgment upon those who are in disobedience to the truth that he has put forward in the context of the whole of the cosmos. So when the writer says, when people sin, they arouse the wrath of God, He is saying that we are putting this in a context to realize that God has the right, first of all, to pour out His wrath on sin. That is a part of His justice. And yet He's also saying that we are arousing it in the context is that we are the ones that are bringing it up. We don't generally, in our sinful sense, like to kind of blame ourselves for things. One of the hardest things in communication in all of life and living with others around us is to admit our fault or our wrong to those that we've gone against falsely. It's just really hard. If we're just honest, it can be very difficult to look look at somebody and say, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. I apologize. There are times we can go hours and days and even weeks, sometimes even months or years, without looking at someone and saying to them, I apologize to you for what I did or said or whatever. Why is it that we would... We know, in this particular case, this is something we know we did, and yet it's difficult for us to look at a person and apologize. Because we don't like to take blame. As self-worshippers, we want to say, I am good and right. I don't need to look at you and apologize. Because I'm looking at me and I see myself as righteous. See? Well, that kind of 
sinful state and that fact has put us in a place that we're the ones that are bringing our sin before God because we're actually sinning before Him in a consistent form and fashion. And that sin arouses the wrath of God to such a state that that wrath must be appeased. And the writer even goes to another place to help us to understand. It's not just they arouse the wrath of God. They actually become enemies of God. Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The idea of this uh, verse in its context is that Paul is writing and saying those who are in Christ are alive in Christ and they've been made new and therefore if we've been baptized in the context of, of regeneration not just speaking of, of the sense of, of following in believer's baptism as a sign of public profession, but if we've been regenerated and made new, we've been buried in baptism. We've been buried into Christ and raised into Christ and we are alive and our bodies are no longer those instruments of unrighteousness against God. We have been made new that we would be those who are living our lives, presenting our bodies to God in a way that we are a living sacrifice. So he says in verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. In its original phrasing here, this is don't use your body as weapons of war against God. Do you realize when we sin, and this, we need to take a moment and really think, think through this, get this in our minds. When we sin, especially actively and knowingly, but when we sin, anytime we sin, we are using our bodies as a weapon of war against God and His righteousness. So in a sense, our sin is a declaration of war against God from our own person. You've seen movies or read books where two generals or two kings meet somewhere out in a field or on the side of a hill. And they have some discussion. And at the end of the discussion, it doesn't go very well. And so they declare war against each other. When we sin, we're declaring war against God. And we are born as sinners by nature on this earth, so we are born as those 
who are by nature declaring war against God. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem like a wise thing to do, declare war against God, does it? You know, growing up as a teenager, my dad, six foot six, 300 so pounds, if I just walked into the house one day, you know, I'm 12 years old, I walk in, I look at him and say, hey, Dad, I'm going to declare war against you. So you better know my wrath is coming. My dad would have smiled, taken three of his fingers, put them into my shoulder right there, squeezed with the spot grip <laughs> with about 10% of his strength, maybe 12, just for an extra measure of pain, and put me to the ground. And I would have been down there like this. Stop! Quit! If you had seen that, what would you have said? You are not a bright person. (laughs) Right? Paul is saying to us, in the context of believers, don't go on doing this. Strive against it. But he's giving us an indication of who we are before Christ. Before Christ, this is our nature. This is what we do. We declare war against God even though it's not the brightest thing to do. And when you declare war against a a powerful enemy, you will endure the wrath of that enemy, right? Right? Why would you want to be an enemy with God? This is what sin has done to our natures. It has completely turned our natures inside out. And that which we should love, our Creator, is that which we hate because we want to be Him ourselves instead of worshiping Him for who He is. The Hebrews writer is getting us to see how dire this situation is when he brings up this one phrase to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's a short phrase. But the word, because it's a word we don't often use, is so often passed over and not put into its proper context for us to understand what is happening here. The Lord Jesus was was sent... Chapter 1, very God of very God. Chapter 2, very man of very man. And he had to be sent in all of who he is to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Why? Because you and I need a high priest. We need a high priest that can do things we cannot do and that we would not do And that even if we tried to do them, that it wouldn't matter. Because we couldn't accomplish what this high priest can accomplish. We need a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Look at that phrase in verse 17. The things pertaining to God. What is pertaining to God? Holy, holy, holy. Right? He's holy. He's perfect in all of his righteousness. It's beyond our imagination. 
We can't even really fathom the holiness of God in its fullness. The picture we get uh, from Isaiah is when you read that, you go, whoa, that must have been amazing, that vision. And that doesn't even really compare to the actual real being of God and all of his righteousness. That's just a picture that just throws our minds into a, We need a high priest in things pertaining to God, His holiness, His righteousness in every way. Why? Because as sinners, we've become enemies of God and we've aroused His wrath. God's wrath needs to be appeased. All of these things pertaining to God, this phrase pertaining to God, the Hebrews writer will start to, well, he's already unfolded some of it, and he will continue to unfold the ideas of that through the rest of the letter. We have to recognize that this puts us to a place to see that there is in no way, in no way, that our works can do anything to keep us from being the enemies of God. The Hebrews writer is saying, right here and now, we are in need of a high priest who is not us, And yet he came among us, made man. And yet he is the Son of God. We cannot, in any of our works, there's not one thing we can do to appease the wrath of God and to no longer be his enemy in and of ourselves. There's nothing we can offer him. I want you to get the picture from Romans 6 now. What what would an enemy do if they all of a sudden realized, oh no, I've picked a fight with the wrong king. What would would the the enemy do? What, What would we say to them, if we all of a sudden realize it, what will we say? Huh? All right, we'd offer a treaty of peace. We'd say, oh, 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 hang on a second. Made a mistake here. I mean, you know, we got 20,000 soldiers and they're well trained, but I didn't realize you had 2 million. My bad. Can we, can we come back to the table for a minute? Because your two million soldiers that are really trained and all the weaponry you have and my 20,000, that's probably not going to go well. So hang, hang on, hang on, time, time out. We, we got some good livestock here. We got the fruit of the field. Can we sit down over a dinner? Let's, let's bring out the mead and see if we can talk about this a minute. Right? 
But you see what the scripture is saying here about who we are. Even if we want to do that, what is it from our own selves, from our own kingdom of unrighteousness, what is it we're going to offer this king that would appease his wrath? See? And so the Hebrews writer is saying, you know what? You all need a mediator. And you need a serious mediator because there's a serious problem. Remember Sproul's quote last week? Man is bad, 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 and God is mad, mad, mad. We've got a serious problem. We need a mediator. Now, the, the picture of the high priest is what? What is the high priest? All right, he's been appointed by God. If you read the Old Testament context of uh, latter portions of Exodus and Leviticus, and, and you get into the context of the high priest, the high priest was appointed by God. What was he appointed to do? Offer sacrifice for the people. And for himself. What else? All right, make intercession. It goes along with the sacrifice, but in the context even of prayer, offering prayer. All right. What else did the high priest do? All right, he taught the word of God to the people. All right, he went into the most high place. He stood in. In the stead of the people. The Hebrews writer is making a case here. It's not just that we need somebody to come to the table who is a better deal maker than we are. We need a high priest who is appointed by God himself pertaining to the things of God that can not just help us make this better, but that can actually do a work that we could not do and would not want to do. All the world is clamoring for peace. Peace, peace, God's peace. Peace, peace, peace. The only peace there can be between God and man is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one and only high priest. And we have to realize we have a real problem on this earth. God is meeting out his wrath upon sin and sinners. There is judgment going on now in various ways. And yet it doesn't even compare to what the final judgment will be. The picture here for us is a picture of the importance of seeing that this high priest this high priest doesn't just come to the table as a mediator to help us communicate. This high priest has put himself in our place. Yeah, Scott.
Well, and, and not only are you right about that, but it, it, it shows how dire our case is because it shows how jaded we are in our thinking. Um, I mean, you, you've seen those situations where there's a person who thinks they can really do something, but everybody standing around knows they can't, right? And this is how we approach God, thinking we can return on our own terms and saying to God, well, look, I, here I am. I'm coming in my terms. The Hebrews writer is giving us a sense to understand that if he's building this case all the way from chapter 1, if you're going to come to God through any other means than the one and only high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a false means. Because not only does this high priest know and understand fully the things pertaining to God, but this high priest, he made propitiation for the sins of the people. And he did it by not only dying on the cross... He did it by living on this earth for he was tempted. And that was a part of his suffering as we discussed. But look at that last phrase of verse 18. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Um, the word aid there is not... Um, some of our modern American English minds would want to kind of lighten that word, um, aid like, you know, put a Band-Aid on it. Um, but the word aid there, not only in its, its meaning, but in the fullness of its context is saying, this is dire. Um, you're, you're bleeding out of your jugular. Pints and pints. Very quickly. The whole of your lifeblood is leaving your body like that. And if we don't do something drastic, you're not going to be saved. Um, you know, if somebody's bleeding out of their jugular and you're standing there looking at them, you're going, if, if you'll hang on just a minute, I'm going to go get some galls and I'm going to come back and I'm going to start to kind of gently wrap those galls around your jugular vein and we'll kind of work this out over a period of a couple of hours. And it's going to be okay. Y'all know that sounds foolish, right? To stand before God and look at it that way and say, oh, we just need a Band-Aid. We're a little sick. No, no, no. The word there and the context of what he's saying is this is, this is dire. And a drastic measure had to be taken. The appointing of the high priest in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of what had to take place in time. I had to send my own son, chapter 1. I had to send my own son, born of the Virgin Mary, to live on this earth among men and to be tempted as men are tempted and to suffer through that temptation very man of very man, yet very God of very God. All so that sinners 
could be literally rescued, redeemed. It shows us a picture of the gospel that we need to remember. There's so much gospel light in the world and churches today. If we don't give the direness of the picture, then what's it really matter if Jesus came to the earth? He's just another good guy. He said some decent things. He was helpful. He healed some people who needed it at the time. He did it in some weird ways. He put spit in the dirt and rubbed some stuff on their eyes. But you know what? He took the blind and he healed them. He was such a good guy. If, if that's the kind of picture that we're getting, we don't understand the dire need we have for Christ as our high priest. And the Hebrews writer here in a short phrase is trying to draw that picture for us of how dire it is. No. You are literally dying on the floor. You are bleeding out. There are seconds. You need something major to happen. We need miracle work to be done here. Life flight is not even going to help you. And that's why we call regeneration or salvation the greatest of all miracles is because it's not just that you and I go, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. No, it's that our actual heart has been changed. We've been made new creatures. We've been enabled to believe these truths even about ourselves. And we see ourselves as sinners. Even when we sin, we see ourselves as sinners and we want to repent of that sin and turn from it. It's that dire. It's that serious. We are in need of someone to come in and do a work that not one of us could do. And, honestly, that not one of us would want to do. We wouldn't want to do it that way. We would want to do it, as Scott said, in our own terms. Okay, God, I see it's serious now. Here's my terms. You know, I'm going to give you 75% of what you want, but here's my 25% here. The Hebrews writer is saying, no, it's God's way or no way. That's it. You repent and believe in Christ nothing else. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's the picture here. Remember, what, what's the context of this letter? What's the context of this letter? Okay, so he's bringing them back to remember what they had thought about some time ago, whether it was a few years ago or whether it was 12 years ago or 15 years ago. Uh, There's some period of time, and he's bringing them back. That's the purpose of this letter, and he's given all of this information 
from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and now he opens up this section of the letter and says, Therefore, holy brethren. Remember, that that's a calling to his brothers and sisters. He's not, he's not going after people and saying, Therefore, you vile pagans. No, he says, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. He's saying, remember who you are. And he says, consider Jesus. Now he's about to unfold and, and start talking about Moses. So he's going to say to them, now your thinking is going to be about Moses and all that Moses did. How Moses was as the one who put forward the law of God to the people and what Moses did in all of his activity. But he's saying, wait a second, don't go back to Moses. Remember, the, 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 the word consider here is a, a word that is saying, let me bring you back to those things which you've been taught recently. Consider Jesus. Come back to those things. Think back on who he is and all that he's done because he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's saying to them, our confession, what have you confessed? Now, he's, he's not talking about confession of sin here. Um, he's using this in, in the idea of, of th this is what you've confessed to be uh, your faith. You've believed this. What is it that you said that you have believed? Come back and remember it. I'm, I'm going to, I've got a few observations I want to make at this point. I want to I go ahead and make those because we're, we're closing in on some time. I think we're getting a real picture here of what it means to live in a broad evangelical world in America. There are churches out there that are like-minded churches with us, and we're thankful for them. There are some that would have some differences with us, but would have a lot of agreement. We're thankful for them. Some have less agreement, some have even less, and some have even less. But in those churches, in that context, there are people who are people who have heard the gospel over the years. Some of them are believers. They've been in the washing machine of all this broad evangelical stuff and they've been tossed to and fro. How do we handle our brothers and sisters? I think the Hebrews writer gives us a picture here in conversation with them, talk to them about these things and say, remember, consider. Isn't this what you confessed when you first believed? That you were a sinner and that you were one who had aroused God's wrath? Because most of them had some understanding of that, if they're, especially if they're true, genuine believers. Make that appeal to them. Make the appeal to them on the high priest himself. Who is Christ? The Hebrews writer is saying, get to know who Christ is so that you can make the appeal to those around you based on who Christ is, 
not what on you and I think. You guys in your workplaces, you're going to certainly be around people who are not believers at all. Um, there's going to be difficult situations like that. Sometimes those people are more... Um, domineering about their beliefs than others. Sometimes they're more gracious. Um, but you're also going to be around people who do profess faith. How do you encourage them? And I think the Hebrews writer is giving us a place here to remind us, go back to the person and work of Christ. Have conversations with people around you about who Christ is and what he did. He's also giving kind of a, a picture of what it means to get people to remember things. When you sit down and you see old pictures of, of good times in your life, you know, if somebody pulls out an old picture book or something, or, or maybe it's online now or something, I don't know, um, but, you know, I go home sometimes and my mom will pull out old pictures. You know, and at first you're like, oh, good grief. But some of those pictures remind you of some good times. Pictures of me and my brother and my dad sitting on the couch together acting goofy or whatever. You remember those pictures with fondness. If a genuine believer is sitting and talking with someone about the greatness and the glory of Christ and being reminded biblically about who he is, they're probably going to be brought back to some good memories. To stir their affections to be thinking about growing in Christ. But it also gives us the opportunity to recognize that when we point people to Christ... Sometimes they won't respond very well. And we will see them for who they are and what they need. They don't need to remember Christ. They need to hear of him for who he is right then and there. But it also puts us in this context, and I've been reminded of this um, very recently. There are some of you in the room that you've talked to family members for years about Christ. And they've had little desire to do anything with it. How much do we pray for them regularly? Because if this work of regeneration is the miracle that we say it is, sometimes it's not just another instance of us saying something or saying it even harder. Nothing wrong with going back to a family member and reiterating things in a gracious way. But sometimes what happens is we get frustrated with talking to family members and we think we got to be more forceful. Let me say this more directly. Let me say this more forcefully. The work the Hebrews writer is talking about is such a work, such a miracle... It's not that we shouldn't say things, but are we praying for these people for all the things that they've already heard? Because there's some of them, they've heard as much or more gospel 
than some people in other places of the whole world. And yet they've still not believed. We need to pray that God would do a work. Because what this letter is going to reveal to us is the context that there were so many people in the hearing of these truths. Their mind was enlightened in the context of these truths, but they were never truly changed. Well, who's the only one that can change them? And wouldn't I make the appeal to that same high priest? The one he's talking about here? I hope that we will remember to pray for those in our lives who are not believers and to pray for them on a regular basis. Pray with hope. Pray with hope. But also, pray with recognition that God has a purpose in all things. And all of these things are ultimately to His glory. The Hebrews writer wants us to see the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus as the one and only high priest. I'll have to close here. There's a few other things I'd like to say, but I I need to close there. Let's close. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to allow us time in your word to see who we are left to ourselves. We are sinners who've aroused your wrath and we are in need of your appointed mediator. None of our mediation will do. So we confess to you our need for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one and only high priest. We have sinned against you in ways that we don't even fully understand. Forgive us, Lord, where we have made light of our sin. Forgive us where we have not seen our sin for what it is. Forgive us for presuming upon your grace. Forgive us when we have not taken the time to pray. Pray for loved ones, to pray for co workers. Lord, give us hearts and minds to glory in your Son Christ as the one and only High Priest. It's in His name we pray. Amen.